Well, good morning. It's great to be here, and I hope everybody had just a wonderful Christmas. And oh, oh, okay. Lookalikes, huh? All I need is a little goatee. <laughs> I talked to my wife about doing that. She didn't like the idea. I don't know, whatever. But so anyway, but I hope you had a blessed Christmas. Um, we we certainly did as a family. It's nice, you know, when you have college students and they come home. And it just makes it so special, and it's great to have my college students back, and they're with us here today, and it's, it's been a great joy. But thank you, worship team. It was, it was a great blessing for us. I don't know where you all are, but you're around there somewhere. It was wonderful. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want to... I'll keep going. All right. Okay. Turn over, if you would, to Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to look at a very familiar text with you. I thought it would be appropriate at this time of year. I uh, probably had the same situation that you had coming to this season. It's always hard to know what gift to get some of your kids, isn't it? And you you inevitably, the older they get, the harder it is. Um, And with almost every one of my kids, at least one of the items we have to go back and replace with something else. It's just, I mean, you give it your best shot, and that's just kind of what happens. When they're young, it's, it's it's much easier. I was at the mall yesterday exchanging one gift with one of my sons and uh, and there was just a ton of people in the same boat as I was because there was something about the gift that they got that it wasn't quite right probably wasn't the cost just wasn't exactly what they were looking for gifts are funny things aren't they I went on uh, the internet and punched in top 10 Christmas gifts you know what I found not one top 10 list was the same it depended upon who was making up the list. Because certain lists are more meaningful to people than others. And it's just kind of the way it works. And price-wise, they're all over the place. I found going to Forbes, listen to this. If you want to get um, some gifts for your children, you can get a King Kong Clubhouse. $30,000. Pretty nice. <laughs> can you imagine? Your little boy, you know, gets a jump rope. He goes over to show his friend, I got a jump rope. He's I got a clubhouse. I mean, you know, how do they compare? I, whatever. Another, you can get a Ferrari go-kart that goes 15 miles an hour for $50,000. But perhaps the most expensive one I could find, there was a three, it was a motion simulator, 3D motion simulator for $300,000 for a kid, nonetheless. They're like, how do you match that? Very costly gifts. Gifts, though, are most special to us, not because of the cost, because they have meaning. Parents, don't you know this? Sometimes my youngest children will give me gifts that I know if I tried to sell them, I couldn't get 50 cents for them. But for me, they're priceless because they gave everything they could in that little item. Once in a while... You can get a costly gift and a meaningful gift and bring them together. My wife blessed me recently. We were talking. I was asking people, hey, what's the best gift you've ever gotten? And my wife said, it was my engagement ring at Christmas time when Doug came out and got engaged to me at Christmas. I'd actually forgotten exactly where I was when I got engaged. But when she said it all, you know, I, I mean, I knew where I was, but I couldn't remember the time year exactly. So that really blessed my heart. A costly gift and meaningful all at the same time. Today, 
you know where I'm going. There is one gift that you have either received or can receive that if you have, you would never return it. It is the most costly gift ever given and the most meaningful all at the same time. And that's exactly what Paul speaks about here in Galatians chapter 4. Look at Galatians chapter 4 verse uh, 4. And it's, it's obviously the gift that God has given to us in the person of his son. But I just want to answer a few questions for you in a short period of time to stay in touch with what Tim was saying. Keep it short here. What is it that God did for us? This costly, meaningful gift. The most. And why did he do it? Just, just two simple questions and answers to those. What was it that he did? Verse 4, he sent his son. Look at what it says. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. But you notice a couple things here in the text. First of all, the Bible says he came at just the right time. In the fullness of time. You ever wonder what that meant? Scholars have said several things and things that are helpful. It's true. The time when Jesus Christ came, Rome was now an empire. And there was, they, they talked about the Pax Romana, a level of kind of peace in the whole empire. It, and and they, they worked on having good roads so the gospel could go forth. That's all true. And it was, it was, it was a lot better than the times of civil war right before the empire. So, fair enough. But Palestine wasn't all that good when Jesus came. Do you remember who's ruling when Jesus Christ comes into the world? It's Herod the Great. And, and, and especially at the end of his life, I mean, when, when you read through his story in the record of Josephus, it's very, very clear that he wants to hold on to the kingship above everything else. And he just knocks off one son after another at the end of his life. Anybody that gets in the way, he kills them. And can you imagine when Magi came rolling into town saying, where is he born king of the Jews? At the end of Herod's life, when he's been trying to hold on to it for his whole life? I mean, it's, it's just it's sent him ballistic. And Jesus comes into that kind of a world, folks. Antagonistic. We know... Right after Herod died, Jesus in, is, is in Egypt. Josephus tells us that Archelaus, his son, wants to rule in Judea. And at least according to Josephus, the Roman historian, it was one of the most tumultuous times imaginable when Archelaus came. There was civil war of such a degree that it was almost as bad as the war that broke out in 70 AD later, according to the historian. It was a terrible time. I mean, people are killing everybody else. You remember when Jesus comes back from Egypt? Remember what the Bible says in Matthew 2? Joseph was told, come back to, come back, I'm sorry, come back from Egypt to Israel. And he was going to go to Judea. But when he realized Archelaus was there, he said, man, I don't want to go there. You know why? Civil war everywhere, folks. And so the angel instead said, okay, you can go back to Galilee where Herod Antipas rules instead. Fair enough. My point is this. Jesus did not step into a hallmark moment, did he? It was war, civil war, 
hatred, pain, sorrow. God said, that's the time I want you to come. Isn't that interesting? In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came. May have not been the time that I would have selected. Maybe not the time you would have selected. But God said, at that time when there's all kinds of extreme pain and difficulty, I'm choosing to come. And I'm choosing to come because a whole series of prophecies from the Old Testament. One of which comes in the book of Daniel where you read about a certain amount of years and everything else. And Jews were ripe because they, had, they could count. And they were ready. One fellow by the name of Simeon that we read about in Luke's account. The Bible says he was just waiting for Christ to come. Apparently he had done some of his arithmetic. There was a whole community from which we get the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Qumran community that were convinced that the Messiah was coming now. They, they were right. They had just found the wrong person. <laughs> Do you see? So the Bible tells us God wants to send his most costly, meaningful gift. And so he sends this gift at just the right time. At the fullness of time, the prophecies have been fulfilled. It's just right. It's a difficult, hard world. But it's the time that he's going to send his son. Something else. He comes at the right time. He comes in the right way. It says, he comes born of a woman. Th that means he's got to be human. The act of redeeming you and I must be the act of the God-man. Do you see that? He had to become fully human. And the Bible tells us, Paul tells us elsewhere, to become human was an act of humility for Christ. I mean, it's true. Of the creatures, we're the greatest. There's no question about that. We stand way above all the other creatures. No question. I mean, we're, we're God's masterpiece. But we stand way below God. The Bible says Jesus Christ was willing to come and be born of a woman. And if you go all the way back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, you already have this prophecy, don't, don't you? Where God speaks to the serpent who, who, is, who is Satan and says, you know what? There is a seed coming from this woman way down the line. And you will, yeah, you will crush his heel. You'll inflict pain on him. But he will destroy you at the end of the day. And he must be human. The promise starts in Genesis 3, and it runs all the way through. So he is willing to come and descend into greatness because of his great love for us. So he comes just at the right time, and he comes just in the right way. He comes as a human. Virgin born. Untainted by sin. He also comes as a Jew. See what he goes on to say here in the text? Born under the law. Jesus had to come as a Jew. You know, I've often thought about this. Can you imagine... The God of the universe who gives the commandments at Mount Sinai comes as a human 
and has to submit to those very commandments that he gives. When he's the one that made them. You know? I mean, he can do whatever he wants. Remember when Jesus was 12 years of age? His parents had left him in, in the temple in Jerusalem. They tracked back. You know, can you imagine what that would be like, traveling a day out and a day back to find? How, how upset would you be, parents? You know, think about that, but that's beside the point. Anyway, they find him. And there he is in the temple. The Bible says, they say, where were you? What are you doing? And you can see parents doing that. And, and, and Jesus said, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? And, and in that moment, though, the Bible says Jesus willingly submits to his parents and goes home. I mean, he's God, isn't he? He's the God-man, and he chooses to come as a human, to come as a Jew, to place himself under the very law that he gave. In Matthew chapter 17, at the very end, of that chapter, there's a series, there's a, some Jews that come up to, um, uh, to Jesus and to Peter, and they say, hey, doesn't, uh, doesn't your master pay the poll tax? You know, there's a poll tax which you pay to, pay to the temple each year. Doesn't he pay that? And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, does the son of the king have to pay the tax that the king gives to everybody else? And the answer to that is, of course not. But Jesus says, look, just so that we won't offend anybody. Once you go over there, grab a fish, and you'll find the tax money that you need in there. And he does. He pays it. But it, it, it's this constant reminder that Jesus comes as a Jew in fulfillment of the Old Testament. But it wasn't easy. He's the one that designed the whole thing. But he comes as a Jew. I, I might add one other thing. He doesn't come as any Jew. And this text doesn't specifically say this. He doesn't come as any Jew. He has to come as a Jew in the line of David, doesn't he? And that's why Matthew, when he starts out his book, he starts out right like that with a genealogy. And he talks about Jesus Christ's specific connection to David. And he goes through the entire genealogy, well, not the entire, selectively goes through the genealogy and comes down to Jesus Christ to show the connection between Jesus and David. Because he wasn't any Jew, was he? He had to be of the line of David. <laughs> I love the text in Matthew 1 when, when the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of who? Son of David. Which, which is a reminder again, Joseph, do you realize that you go all the way back to David and I'm going to do something with the son that you're going to adopt, Jesus Christ, so that he can be connected back there too. So the text says, God sent forth his son. When? At just the right time. How? Well, he, he came as a human. He came as a Jew. He came as a Jew in the line of David. Why? Look at what the text goes on to say. Why did God do this? Why would he send his son? Verse 5. In order, that we might in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Two things there. To redeem us on the one hand, to adopt us on the other. 
Um, we have eight children in my family. Uh, six natural born, two adopted, two girls, my two youngest. And we, we lived abroad, we lived in Brazil, and, and while we were there, my parents just felt of the Lord that we should adopt some children there. There was a lot of suffering young children, so that we did, and it was a wonderful thing that we did. And I'm very glad my parents did it. But I have to tell you something. If we would have been living in Brazil at that time, and somebody would have said, you know, you can adopt these two girls, but you're going to have to give up two of your natural-born children to do it. How hard do you think that would have been? I mean, that, that, that moves it to a whole different level, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, we want to bring these children in, but we, not at that cost. This text says God took his only unique son. And he said that I might adopt them, I will give him. I've always found that to be incredible. Adoption is wonderful. But how much more when the natural is given for those that are going to be adopted? Do, do you see? So this text tells us, why did God do it? He wanted to redeem us. And like Tim said in his prayer, I don't know, I'm assuming most people in here know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But, but, but honestly, at this Christmas season, do you know that God extends the most costly the most meaningful gift in the world to you and says, here it is, I'd like you to have it. At great cost to myself, the, the death of my son. I mean, what does it mean for God to abandon God? I don't know. I really don't know how that all works out. And I try to teach this stuff. But in scholars, just they don't know what to do with that whole thing. But we know as it happened. And at great cost, God says, Here's the gift. Could you imagine if when I was going to engage to my wife, I gave her that engagement ring. I was all excited. She opened it up and she said, nah, no big deal. She shut it and chucked it in the trash can. How would I have felt? Really bad. I would have, actually, I would have gone and gotten it out of the trash can, but I would have felt real bad. <laughs> Save it for the next one, you know, whatever. But, but <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm kidding. My wife's not here. I'm kidding. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, but you know what I mean? How, how would I have felt? I would have felt terrible. But you know, people do that to God all the time. God says, it's yours. All you have to do is receive it, and I will change your life forever and bring you into a relationship with myself. I'll forgive all of your sins, and I'll make you a forgiven follower of mine, and your whole life will be reoriented. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, but it'll be good. And it's yours. It's free people throw in the trash can. It's not because God hasn't given us the gift. It's because we've chosen not to receive it. And this text says God's passion at just the right time in just the right way God gives of His Son at great cost that you and I could be adopted. That you and I could be redeemed. The imagery of a slave that becomes free. One of my old films, the old films that I really enjoy is Ben-Hur. Have you ever seen Ben-Hur? from It's, it's a great one. And you remember what happens. He, he goes from being this galley slave to being adopted as a son 
uh, of this great Roman uh, senator. I think it was one of the senators. Um, just incredible kind of movement. It wasn't just that he was freed, but he was adopted into this high-ranking nobility home. Notice what this text says. Because you are sons, verse 6, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He adopted us that we might be his intimate children. I'm a couple years removed from this now because my youngest is in sixth grade. But I, I watch. I remember, I won't mention names, but I, I remember when I was up here last, it's, it's just kind of cute to, to watch at church when people have little, just little tykes, you know, preschoolers. And, and, and what happens when that little child gets lost and doesn't know where the parent is? You know, a little bit of a panic. But then when they find that, that parent, they just, they hold onto their leg and the parent picks them up and they just hold on and, and daddy, daddy, daddy. You know, it's, it's such a picture of intimacy. Uh, you know, a child in the father's hand or the mother's arms and just, and they're holding them. The child's just, just as secure as can be. And when they whisper to their parents, it's daddy this and mommy that and that kind of a thing. In this text, God doesn't just say, Doug, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. He says, I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to make you not only an heir, but a joint heir of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to bring such intimacy into your life that when you pray to me through the Spirit, you will talk to me like that three-year-old in the lap of their parent that just holds on and says, Daddy, Mommy, I love you. Because I know you love me. Isn't that, what, isn't that what happens with a child? It's so precious to watch. And every time you see that with a parent, think of yourself and God. Because he wants to bring that kind of subjective, personal experience into your life and your relationship with God. It's not just, hey, I saved you, I'll see you in heaven. No way! It's your mind. And your mind in an intimate way forever. Do you see? So I want to adopt you that you might experience intimacy with the Father. And lastly, verse 7, that you might move from being a slave to an heir. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Explain this to me, because I don't know the answer to this exactly. What does it mean that you're a joint heir of Jesus Christ? What does it mean that those things that are his, he shares with you? Paul will often say, you know what? I want you to be absolutely filled up with just the glory of Christ. But he goes on to say this, and Christ will be filled up with the glory of you. I don't, I mean, do you, it just means we're so brought into union with him that what is his is ours. And I don't know what all that means, Tim. But I know it's good. I know it's really good. The most costly gift was given at just the right time in just the right way so that you and I could be redeemed, but not only redeemed, 
but to move from being slaves to children, heirs of God who experience intimacy with Him right now through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great stuff? Heard somebody... Oh, you know, I, I, I did want to read something to you. I was going to read it to you earlier. I, I'll read it now. It doesn't quite fit, but it's here, so I'll, I'll just read it. I brought it along. I thought it was really... Just talking about the humility of Jesus Christ becoming human. And, and this, this comes out of something I, I, I picked up from Max Lucado. But I thought it was really, really good. Let, let me just read it. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with the word chose to be, be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were not manicured. Rather, they were calloused and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. And were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the streets with Him. And had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons, well, you can imagine what he would have thought. Perhaps Jesus had pimples. Perhaps a, a girl down the street had a crush on him when he was growing up. And it could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure. He was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He got colds. Perhaps at times he burped and had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. And his head would ache. To think of Jesus in such a light as well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something that we like to do. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Pretend he never snored or blew his nose. Or perhaps even hit his thumb with a hammer. God did that. Died on a cross. That you and I could be his children. And in this season in which we worship Him, be more of a Mary than a Martha. Isn't it easy at this time of the season just to be running and going and doing and, ah? Oh. But take time. Take time to pull back and just reflect on Him. And adore this one that has done so much for us. Let's pray.